pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, you tell your people that your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing joint and marrow, and that it is at work in those who believe. We gather this morning trusting that your word is a living word, that it does its work in us as we trust in Jesus. And so we pray this morning that you would send your spirit to do your work in us through the scriptures, that we might be conformed more to Jesus' image and that we might trust more in his grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're nearing the end of our studies in Mark. We're in chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. You'll find that on page 850, 851 of the Pew Bible. This is the eve before Jesus' crucifixion. The disciples must be confused. They must be unsure of themselves and unsure of what is going to take place. But Jesus has some final words for them. Let me read for us here, beginning in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had uh, told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me one who was eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it was written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have, would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink, it, drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. If you've read any biographies of Martin Luther, or you've seen the movie, or if you have heard it in a sermon, most likely you know that Martin Luther was a man of a very sensitive conscience. So much so that before he actually trusted in Christ by faith, as a Catholic monk, he would pray for hours and hours endlessly each day for forgiveness. In fact, he believed that he must repent of every particular sin that he committed in order to be forgiven. And so he would kneel before the Lord and pray and pray and, and ask forgiveness for sins that he had not asked forgiveness for, that he wasn't even aware of, because he had such an insecure conscience. And 
insecurity about his spiritual well-being before the Lord that he felt he must stand before God and repent again and again and again. You know, spiritual insecurity plagues us all at times. And most of the time it, res it results from the fact that we are looking at ourselves rather than looking at Christ in all of his graces, just like spiritual pride results from looking at ourselves rather than Christ, as we'll see next week when we look at Peter and his denial of Jesus. Now, the backdrop of this particular passage here is betrayal. We're told here in verse 17 that when evening came, he met with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. You can imagine the setting in that room together. And all of a sudden, Jesus, in this great time of fellowship, says, now one of you is going to betray me. And look at how the disciples respond. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I or literally not me? Surely not me, Lord. They are filled with sorrow, not only at the prospect that Jesus would be betrayed, but, but it might be at one of their hands. And so they begin to wonder, is it me? Am I the one who would do this? And what they sense is that same sense of spiritual insecurity that Martin Luther felt and that we feel at times as well. When we are looking at ourselves, we are looking at our performance we are looking at our sin as the measuring stick of God's acceptance before us rather than looking at Jesus and what He has done on the cross for us. And at such times, Jesus wants us to look up from ourselves and to look at Him. And He tells the disciples here many things. I want to point out four things that Jesus does to provide comfort for disciples who have fragile consciences First is this, we look to Jesus for his sovereign oversight of our lives. His sovereign oversight of our lives. As I have said and we've seen, there's great hostility towards Jesus at this point in Jerusalem. So much so that the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the Sanhedrin, have basically issued an arrest warrant for Jesus. Anyone who is to see him is to report him in that they might arrest him. And so there's great hostility and naturally the question then would be on the disciples lips, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? If there's an arrest warrant out for you, if there's such hostility towards you, if they want to arrest you, where are we possibly going to go in the city where we are commanded to gather? to eat the Passover meal. Now Jesus made some preparations for this. We're told in verse 13, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room finished and ready there prepare for us. Most likely what has taken place is that Jesus has already made arrangements ahead of time. And so what he tells the disciples is, I want you to go into the city. And you see a man 
carrying a jar of water, most likely on his head, he is going to come up and greet you. Now, in those particular days, men carried water in wineskins. Women carried waters, water in jars above their heads. And so this would be a signal. It's sort of like going to a Clemson football game where 80,000 people are wearing orange. And someone tells you, now go into the stadium and find the one person wearing garnet, carrying a large stuffed gamecock under his arm. That's the person that you are supposed to meet. And so Jesus says, I've made arrangements, and there will be one who will stand out, and he will come, and he will greet you, and he will lead you to a master's house. And that is where you are to prepare for us. So behind the scenes, Jesus is at work. And the reason is simply this. Jesus, as John tells us, knowing what's in the heart of every man, and he knows what Judas has already arranged. Remember last week in chapter 14, verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And so Jesus has now made arrangements that, that Judas might not short-circuit Jesus' last night with his disciples to give them instructions about what's going to happen, to encourage them along the way. And so what we see here is the events unfolding exactly as Jesus has prearranged. The disciples set out to the city and found it just as he had told them. It's not only the fact that Jesus has made prearrangements, but that Jesus in all of his sovereignty is orchestrating the events of the disciples' lives in such a way that it works out just as he has planned. Imagine the city, it's swollen with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims come into the city to worship God at Passover. And they find this one, this one man carrying a jar. It's the sovereign work of God. And Mark wants us to see this. Such sovereignty by Jesus reflects his sovereign, or, the sovereign ordering of all of our lives. His good work in all of our lives. And he calls us to trust in his word. The command was simple. Prepare for us. And what did they do? And they prepared the Passover. The disciples obeyed. And they arrived safely. Jesus wants us to see his sovereign ordering of our lives just the same. Sometimes we go through life and it seems as though the events of life are just hurtling out of control. We, we don't have any sense that we have a handle on things. Sometimes it's illness that rocks our very lives. Sometimes it's financial disaster. Sometimes it's the, the shipwreck of a marriage Sometimes it's the loss of a, love, of a loved one. Sometimes it's dreams that are unfulfilled. The fact that we don't get into the college that we want to get into. And it seems as though the events of life are out of control. And we wonder, maybe God has forgotten me. Maybe he doesn't really know what's taking place in my life. And what Mark is revealing to us here is that even when we go into a city and we wonder, where is God? He's already there. And he's already made arrangements and ordered our lives. And he calls us to trust in the sovereign oversight that he has for us. And in the heart of the disciple, the most comforting thing at that point is simple obedience. 
I can't understand all the events that are taking place. I don't know why this is happening to me. It seems as though so many things are coming at me. I I can't control it all. But the one thing I can do is obey. And that's a comfort to the people of God at that point. Trust and obey Jesus. I remember hearing a story about a woman who was blinded in a car accident. And as part of her rehabilitation, her doctor said that she would need to go to a special clinic and be uh, trained by occupational therapists to learn how to live as a blind person. She was afraid to go by herself. And so her husband, who was an Air Force officer at the time, decided that he would go with her. And so he would ride the bus with her every day. She couldn't drive, and so she would have to learn how to ride the bus by herself. And so he would ride with her for several days consecutively. And he would help her remember the stops, to count the stops, so that she would get off at just the right place. And then she would get off the bus, and he would walk with her. And they would go across the street to the clinic. And he would open the door for her, and they would walk in to the waiting room, and he would show her just where to go. And after several days of this, he said, now I think it's your turn to go by yourself. And she said, no, I'm not ready. But he said, I think you've got to do this. And so that next day, she boarded the bus. She counted the stops. She got off and made her way across the street and went into the building. And after several days of making her own way, she got back on the bus one afternoon and the bus driver says, you know, somebody loves you. She said, what do you mean? And he said, well, every day that you get off the bus, there's somebody standing across the street in a uniform watching you. And he watches as you cross the street. And as you go to the door, he opens the door for you and waits for you to go in. And she knew it was her husband. My friends, that's the same reality about Jesus. He's not asking us to go anywhere where he is not present He's not asking us to go anywhere where He has not ordered our lives. but Rather to trust that His sovereign ordering of our lives is the reason that we can go. Because we trust in His grace. Well, the second thing here is not only His sovereign ordering of our lives, but also submission. His submission to the will of the Father. Now, when the disciples asked Jesus one by one who it is that would betray Him, He responded by saying in verse 20, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, Mark doesn't specify that it's Judas. Now, we can infer that by the fact that he has already said that it is Judas who would betray Jesus. But if we reconstruct the seating arrangement that night, we might get a better picture of it. John, the Apostle John, actually tells us that he was sitting on the right of Jesus in the bosom of Jesus as they reclined at table with their left arm. John would have been able to lean back into the bosom of Jesus. That was the seat of honor at the right hand. Now the betrayer is the one who can dip his bread into the same dish as Jesus, which means the betrayer would be sitting on the left side of Jesus. That place was called the place of of the intimate friend. Now why would Jesus put Judas, whom he knew would betray him, 
in the place of the intimate friend. Because you see, Jesus is the one who is willing to be betrayed even by his closest of friends. John tells us that Jesus' ministry here, being betrayed by the closest of friends, actually is a fulfillment of Psalm 41. A psalm which speaks of this poor, righteous sufferer who is spoken of by saying, even my closest friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Here Jesus is willing to have one that he would call friend sit in the place of the intimate friend and be betrayed by him. Why? Because as Jesus says in verse 21, the Son of Man goes as it was written of Him. The Heavenly Father had already written it of Jesus. And Jesus is willing to submit to the plans of the Heavenly Father to be betrayed by one of His closest of friends. How would you and I respond to that? When a closest of friend betrays us, we want revenge. We're angry. And yet Jesus is willing because He loved the Father so much that He would do all that the Father had asked of Him. This is the means by which the enemy would claim victory through the, through the betrayal of even a friend, but, but it's also the means by which the world would see the humility and the love and the graciousness of God. Jesus was willing to display the character of God, His, His glorious grace, by being willing to be betrayed by one who pledged to love Him. He wasn't just willing to die for sinners. He was willing to be betrayed for sinners. He was willing to be spit on for sinners. Something that you and I most likely are unwilling to do, even for the best of people. And he was willing to do it for vile sinners like you and me. See, it's that kind of submission that Jesus possesses and that we lack. It's what the disciples meant, but when they said, surely not me, Lord, is it I? They understand that this could be them. And in some days we understand it could be us too when we sin against God and we realize we have betrayed Him yet again. This could be me. But it's not Jesus. Because He's always faithful to His Heavenly Father. And the glorious thing for those who trust in Him is that as I told the children, that same obedience that's offered to the Father is the same obedience that's credited to you. That he who knew no sin would become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we would be those who are faithful at all times, even when betrayed by our closest of friends, that we still love our enemies. Because it was true of Jesus, it's true of us too. So here he is, willing to submit to the Father. You know, the devil often wants to tell us, you're not worthy. You're not worthy to be a Christian. 
You're not worthy to be called a child of God. You're not worthy to go worship Him. You're not worthy to be forgiven. And a Christian simply responds by saying, you're right, you don't know the half of it. But I have one who is worthy. And He stands in my place. And He gives me all of His righteousness. And so Jesus is sovereignly ordering our lives. He sovereignly submits to the will of the Father, but He's also the substitute for His people. Now Luke tells us that it was Peter and John that were the two that were ordered to go and prepare the Passover meal. So you can imagine they go into the city that day and they begin to buy the food, the the bitter herbs, the stewed fruit, the bread, the wine, and of course the Passover lamb. And they would have had to have gone to the temple and had the lamb inspected by one of the temple priests because it must be spotless in order to represent the people of God. It must be spotless to be a righteous offering to the Lord God. I wonder, I wonder if they had any sense when they were buying that lamb and when it was being inspected, looked over by the temple priest, that this lamb, this lamb that we are slaughtering today is not what we really need. But we need a different kind of lamb who will go in our place and be our substitute. And that is what Jesus has done. He's making the connection for them here. Here at the Last Supper, he, He's declaring this meal to have a, a new meaning to it. Now, most of us have very little understanding of what took place at a Passover meal. And so it's important that we can reconstruct this for just a minute. The meal was punctuated by the serving of several cups of wine during the meal. The first cup was passed around by the father or the host, and then the food was passed around to everyone. It was brought in, and at that point, the youngest son in the family was the one who was required by the book of Exodus to ask the question, why is it that on this night we eat this particular food? And then the father would respond and speak the story of the Exodus about how God had brought his people out of bondage of slavery in Egypt into freedom that they might worship him. And so the father would recount this night of the Exodus and he would speak of the final plague that God would bring upon the Egyptians. The plague of death when the firstborn son of every household was killed. But it was the Passover lamb and those who placed its blood on the doorposts and the lentils of the house that was the covering of the people of God so that they were under the protection of someone who stood in their place as a substitute for them. And so the father would recount that to the son and to all those who were present. And then as an act of praise of God's saving grace, they would sing Psalms 113 through Psalm 115 in the second cup was passed and the father would say a blessing and he would break the bread and he would pass it around with the bitter herbs to represent the bitterness of their bondage in Egypt and the meal was consumed and then the third cup was passed now the first cup first cup was to represent the fact that God brought them out of Egypt the second was to represent their release from slavery but the third cup the third cup re- represented redemption. That they had been bought back and bought at a price. God had made a covenant with His people 
And yet his people had disobeyed his covenant commands. And therefore they needed one who would stand in their place to receive punishment. And what Jesus is doing here is saying, I am the lamb. I'm not only the host of the meal, I am the meal itself. I am the blood of the covenant. I am the bread that's being offered to you. That's what he's telling them. Take, this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant. And so Jesus is offering not only cleansing from sin, he's actually offering them himself. Take me, because I'm the only one who can cleanse you and who can make you right with God. Anytime we're feeling that sense of spiritual insecurity, much like Martin Luther, we feel guilt over our sins where our consciences are wounded. We have a clear understanding and a picture of the grotesque nature of our sin. Jesus is declaring to us, I am sufficient. Take of me and I will give you all that you need. And we are those who must take of Jesus by faith or we are still in our sins. A friend of mine told me a story of how he was at a conference and he was meeting with a young lady there. She was not a Christian. She was antagonistic against the Christian faith. She wanted nothing to do with it, but had come because a friend had invited her. And my friend sat down with her and they began to discuss the claims of Christ and the gospel of grace. And she put up every roadblock she possibly could, much like the woman at the well in John chapter 4, who wanted to talk theological issues. Why what she believed must be true. And then he looked at her in the face and he said, you may argue against all these things, but what are you going to do about your guilt? What are you going to do about your guilt? And it's the only thing that began to melt her icy heart. So that it was no longer a theoretical, abstract, intellectual argument. It became real to her. What am I going to do about my guilt? Everyone feels a sense of guilt. We're made in God's image. We have a conscience. We all feel a sense of guilt. And there's only three things you can do with it. The first is to suppress it. That's the picture of Romans 1, where the knowledge of God is actually suppressed. And sometimes we try to suppress our guilt, don't we? It's, it's actually what modern psychology wants to tell us all the time. You're a victim. You're a victim of someone else's wrongdoing. You're a victim of a disease. And what you need is to understand that you're a victim and that you have victim status. And in that way, we simply deny it or suppress it. The other way is not just simply to suppress it, uh, but actually to try to pay it back. To say, I'm going to be better. I think we all struggle with this at times, don't we? Not only in relation to God, but in relation to other people too. We, we sin against them. We want to we earn it back a little bit. I'll be real nice to them for a while and, and maybe they'll like me again. Maybe they won't be so hostile towards me anymore. More than likely, we sort of bounce back and forth between the two, don't we? I'm not guilty. I'll pay it back. That's where most people are, bouncing back and forth. And yet what Jesus says in the Gospels are something altogether different. 
It's atonement, forgiveness, cleansing. When you come to Him, He says, take of me and I will make you clean. And so here we see Jesus' sovereign ordering of our lives. We see also how He substitutes Himself for our sinful state. And finally this, it's His pledge to gather His people to Himself in glory. Now this is the last night that Jesus would spend with His disciples. And Luke tells us that He had long desired to eat this meal with His disciples. And that is because it would be the last time until He would eat with His disciples in glory. Now what Jesus says here in verse 25 is this, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now what is Jesus talking about? I mentioned the third cup of redemption. Well, there was a fourth cup too. And it was the cup that represented the fact that God promised to one day come and take His people into glory. And He says, I'm going to set that cup aside for now because I will not drink of it until that day when we all gather together around the banquet feast of God and we know Him perfectly. When our hearts are fulfilled by His presence, when we are filled with delight and joy and pleasures forevermore. My friends, those who are spiritually insecure are often looking at themselves and trying to be filled up at times with themselves and with what they can do. I remember an interview with Tom Brady, the quarterback, Super Bowl winning quarterback of the New York Patriots. This was a number of years ago now, but in the interview he was basically saying this, there must be more to life than winning three Super Bowls, dating and marrying a supermodel, and being on top of the world, having all the ad campaigns and all the money I could ever want. There must be more to life than this. Now that was a number of years ago. Tom Brady is on the backside of his career. It won't be long and he'll be out of the NFL. The money, resources will begin to wane. The notoriety will no longer be there. What will fill him? The only thing that will ever fill the people of God, that will only fill anyone, is the joy of being in the presence of Jesus. And that's what he's saying here. Come to me. Be filled up by me. Take refuge in me. Seek me. I'm sure the emotions ran deep that night as they were thinking about the betrayal. As they were thinking about the cross and what is to come. What fellowship must have been like on that night. How much sweeter will it be in glory? When there's no more confusion. There's no more sin to separate us from God. There are no more questions in our mind. Or are we worthy to be in His presence? But just the fullness of His glory. And all of His grace being showered down upon us. What a great Savior we have. And He invites us. Come to Him. Look not at yourself. But look at Christ. He is all that you need.
Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to keep from turning our eyes off of Jesus. So often we look upon ourselves and we see our own uh, frailty, we see our own failures. And yet, Lord, what we need is to look upon Jesus because he is all that we need. We pray that you would give us that faith. For Jesus' sake, amen.